listening to Action Line on KINY. I am your host, Jordan Lewis, and joining me I have Rob Krieger, and I want to make sure I do all these names right because that can be a bit of a problem sometimes. Neil Freed from the Department of Labor. How are you both doing today? Doing good. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Sounds good to hear. Now, I think, Rob, you and I are going to talk a bit more in this first half, and then Neil, I'll get to you more in the second half here, but I mean, we'll probably mix and match a bit as well. I wanted to talk to you, Rob, about your article you did for the Department of Labor about the housing market shifts in 2022. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, in Juno, housing is always a big topic of conversation. And so seeing that that was an article in the Trends magazine caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, this year, you know, there's been a lot to talk about in housing the past couple of years, especially. And I think 2022 was particularly interesting because you know, when you look at it, you look at the year as a whole, um, what was happening in the individual quarters was really interesting, particularly with respect to interest rates, how in beginning of 2022, we start out kind of in a continuation of the heated market that we've seen in, in 2020 and 2021. Interest rates up a bit off their lows, but still historically low. Um, and then we kind of see things change fairly quickly going into second, third, and fourth quarter, where we're at almost, uh, I think we were up from, you know, from first quarter of 2022 to fourth quarter of 2022, we're up almost 240 basis points, finishing the year averaging about 5.75% in interest rates. And that had a huge impact on um, housing affordability in general. Um, Over the past couple years, even though sales prices have been climbing fairly rapidly, uh, those low interest rates have kept um, monthly payments somewhat manageable, even in the face of of those rising sales prices. But um, with rates up as much as they have been in the past year, that really took a toll on um, people's ability to afford a house. And and that has a tendency, you know, when you see an impact like that on affordability, that definitely tends to bring a lot of buyers out of the market, put them on the sidelines, and kind of cool things down a bit. Yeah, I was going to say, because I'm looking at the the graphs that are provided with the article, you know, I see interest, you know, once you hit, you know, second quarter of 2022, you're jumping from, I would say maybe about three and a half percent to almost five and a half percent by the fourth quarter. Yep. That's a pretty big jump. And that's in our data, um, you know, an increase like that is is pretty unprecedented. Um, And um, yeah, it's something we haven't seen before. And it's it's moving the, the kind of affordability numbers in ways we haven't seen before either. Yeah, because like I said, to immediately follow up on that, you know, you look at the affordability chart, which uh, for those that are listening at home, the the lower the number I read off, the more affordable it is. So in the first quarter of 2022, you're looking at about a, a 1.1 in terms of affordability. But then right. by quarter four, you're looking at, you know, 1.5, which is a significant bit higher and makes it far less affordable. Right, and so that affordability index that you're talking about—that's something we've produced in in our in our um, section since the early '90s. Um, a value of one in the index means that it takes the the average wages of one person in order to afford the principal and interest payments on an average mortgage with the average rate and the average priced home. Um, so yeah, again, in 2021 and 2020 that index value was just over one, meaning that it just took a little bit more than one person's average wages to afford the average priced home. Um, in 2022, we see that index value jump up to over 1.4, which is a significant increase. And another example of how you know that, that, that interest rate pushed had a huge impact on affordability in a way that we had not seen historically. 
in, in many ways, and this is going to be sort of my youth showing again, it reminds me of uh, a lot of folks sort of in my, my age range, the, you know, the early, the early 20s to early to mid 20s, getting it maybe even into your late 20s. A lot of us have made this sort of a observation over the years of like the odds of us being able to afford a house independently is, is, is drastically decreasing. And seeing those graphs almost kind of lends, lends credence to that because you're seeing it where, you know, one person's, you know, wages is just not going to, it's not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it, it, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what your demographic would be, but I think that the, um, you know, the, the first time buyers in particular, I think benefited significantly from having rates as low as they were the past two years in 2020 and 2021. Um, that made it possible for a lot more people to participate and borrow more and be competitive. Um, but I think, you know, as rates have come up, that group, that first time home buyer group is going to be the most impacted and are probably going to be the ones who are um, going to kind of be kicked out of the market at least for a while. Um, but because there's still, you know, even though there's even though rates are up i think that there's you know there's still a lot of people who want to buy houses and anytime you see rates go down which they you know they've been volatile lately anytime you see any type of a downward um swing in rates you're likely to see more people come off the sidelines and kind of keep things going okay and then I'm looking at some other numbers you've got here as part of your study. You know, this is the the earners needed to afford the average house uh, by area. I'm looking at the Juno numbers. And, you know, even going back to 2019, it's always been at least almost close to one and a half people. I mean, that's yep. not as extreme as, say, Bethel. Bethel's, Bethel would have the highest number here for 2022 where you needed at least, you know, two people to afford uh, your average home. And so it kind of makes me wonder what are some of the, the contributing factors to these numbers that we're seeing. Yeah, Juno has always been kind of, whether it's affordability or rental cost, Juno always tends to kind of float to the top of the list in terms of, um, you know, high cost places to live. Um, and in, back to this affordability index number, I think in, in 2019, before the pandemic, before we saw that kind of market take off the way that it did, um, index value for Juno is about 1.6, and that's probably pretty close to where it generally falls historically. Um, then in 2020 and 21, we're still high in Juno, but we're because of interest rates, and even though sales prices were rising so much, that value drops to 1.4. Um, and then it, you know, then we get to 2022, where you factor in those higher rates, and then we're clear back up to over 1.7. So um, yes, Juno agenda comes in high, um, did drop lower, in the past two years, but then, you know, shoots right back up as a result of rates. And I think, you know, the big thing in Juno, what's driving that number is the, um, you know, the average sales price. We just had, you know, in 2022, we were the only place that had sales prices over 500,000, um, which is, uh, you know, the highest in the, in any of the areas that we look at specifically. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, and I see what you're saying now, because now I have the, the average home sale prices, you know, the for 2022, the average Juno home sale price was 513000 and then, you know, $513,119, mm-hmm. which is pretty significant compared to, like, even compared to Anchorage, you know, that's only about 468843 And to me, it would appear as though the highly urbanized space would be the one that you maybe you could say there would be you know lower home sales prices because you'd need more homes there anyway but you would think at least to me that that would have a higher home sale price than Juno would 
Yeah, it's it's hard to say. And you know, there's one thing we don't have a lot of visibility on in our data is kind of what what is. You know, it's it's easy to look at the sales price and say, well, it's up 25% from a year ago. But what we don't know from our data is like what whether that those prices are the result of appreciation or what's happening when you compartmentalize the market. You know, what's happening on the high end of things, what's happening in the middle and on the lower end, and where are a lot of those price increases happening? We don't know for sure because um, we can't we can't dissect the data to that degree. But we do know for sure over the years um, looking at we have the ability to kind of look at new construction and existing construction and a lot of those sales price gains that we've seen in the past couple of years have been the result of um big increases in prices for new construction driven by demand for new construction um people just seem to want new houses and by our definition a new house would be one that was built within the past year or that has never been lived in before um yeah demand for new construction is high and people seem to be willing to pay for it Okay. Uh, well, I find it interesting that you say that because I also have the graph here that showed that despite the demand, the actual new home construction is at near low for yeah with this in this last year. Yeah, we've seen like there and, and the, the the decline in new construction activity across Alaska is not a new phenomenon. That's been you know since about two thousand eight or two thousand nine, we've been kind of on a it hasn't been a complete decline, but it's been kind of like slowing down steadily over the years. Um, but at the same time, demand for new construction has been increasing. So I think that's that's really what's, you know, a lot of that sales price increase that we've seen recently has been the result of um, increases in, de- in the prices for new construction. Um, you know, historically, we know that new construction generally always costs more than existing. And the, the premium, that is the difference people are willing to pay for new construction versus existing, has averaged about 20%. Um, in 2022, we saw that difference between new construction and existing construction prices go clear up to almost 40%, which is uh, which is a significant increase in that premium. Gotcha. Well, we are going to be moving into our break. When we come back, I will be talking with Neil Fried more about another sort of aspect of all of this, which is the actual personal income for Alaskans in 2022. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. Action Line on KINY. I am your host, Jordan Lewis, and joining me still, I have Rob Krieger and Neil Freed from the Department of Labor. Now, Neil, now I want to talk to you more because you did an article about Alaska personal income. So where would you like to start with that? Yeah, I mean, personal income is is an, uh, a number that comes out actually. Well, at a statewide level, it comes out quarterly. Um, usually, we don't pay attention to that very much. It also comes out annually, and and the beauty of it is is that it's produced for every state in the country, so we can compare. And we always like comparing ourselves to others. And then they produce it for every what they call counties in the country. In Alaska's case, that's boroughs and census areas. So there's there's a lot of detail, and it's also you know includes basically almost all income to that come to us as individuals, uh, and so it's kind of a measure of of economic well-being or one of those measures out there that's you know watched pretty closely because you're taking total income and dividing by every man, woman, and child. Right. And now I'm looking at uh, this This first graph has already caught my attention, which was Alaska per capita income as a percent of the U.S. And I'm assuming that's as a comparative to the U.S. income, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an eye catcher. I was gonna say because it looks like we've just consistently gone down since 2010 until about 2021. Then we started to kind of tick back up this last year. Yeah, and that's probably an aberration. But yes, I mean it, it's been a long term. You know, basically in, in 2010, the average per capita income in, in Alaska was about 22 percent above the national average and uh, got down to like two or three percent above the national average um, in 2021 and that's been the long trajectory um, during that decade and you know i think one of the biggest reasons why that's happened is during that period of time the american economy was red hot it kept on growing kept on adding jobs it was i think the longest economic expansion the country had experienced since World War II. Um, so, and ours was very different. This was probably the worst decade um, uh, and since uh, statehood as far as employment growth um, and respect, uh, income growth probably, and certainly population. So, you know, we've been sort of moving in two different directions, uh, our broader economies, and that's reflective in what's happened to per capita income. Another additional hit um, was the fact that we just lost a big chunk of jobs in the oil industry, which tend to pay um, the highest wages in the state, and we took some really big hits um, in, in that industry since 2015. Gotcha, and I and I can definitely see where I would agree with you that losing those those oil jobs would take a pretty significant hit. You think about how much of an influence that has in the state economy. You know, I'm looking at the the per capita income by state graph now, and I see that we you know we rank 11th overall nationally. Right. Uh, we rank 11th at $68,919 compared you know to the national average of 65,000. 423 and there were many years in our past um, that you know we were in that top three four or five but uh, it's been a while so we have been you know slipping down the rankings i think we increased our ranking a little bit this last year but that might be a a slight aberration Um, you know now we're at five percent above the national average when we're looking at per capita income and if you were of course to adjust that for cost of living, the story probably would change. Gotcha. And then it sort of makes me wonder then, I would imagine that some of that bump definitely would stem from the permanent fund dividend, correct? Yes. I mean, what happened was is it was really quite interesting. Um, you know, what one of the weird things, COVID has produced a lot of weird things, including in the real estate market that that um, Rob was talking about earlier, but what in 2020, if you had said to me, you know, we're going to lose, you know, over 20,000 jobs in the state economy, what's going to happen to personal income? I would have said, well, it's going to decline because ha- over half of um, personal income typically comes from wages and salaries, but that didn't happen. Um, instead, you know, which we didn't know earlier on, but it certainly happened over time was the federal government sent a lot of uh, money to individuals, um, whether it was enhanced unemployment or just checks to all of us, um, you know, and other, you know, rental systems and other things that boosted our income made, and actually more than made up for that lost 
um, wages and income actually grew in 2020. Um, and, you know, so, and that was transfer income. Those are dollars that usually come from the federal government or from state governments um, in, in the form of Social Security, welfare benefits, unemployment, um, veterans benefits, and in Alaska's case, uh, the PFD. Well, those transfer benefits also were a big part of income all across the country, including Alaska in 2021. But by 2022, they had pretty much disappeared. You know, those, those federal benefits that we were all receiving. And transfer income nationally fell by over 15%. Ours did just the opposite or kind of the opposite and increased by 1%. Um, now, it doesn't sound like a big change, but one's negative 15 and one's plus, it, it is a significant change because we did lose a lot of our federal COVID-type benefits in 22. But what happened, as we all can remember, because it wasn't very long ago, we got that near-record PFD check that uh, more than made up for those losses, and we actually um, saw a bump um, in our personal income relative to the rest of the country. And I think going from an event of you know, 2% or 3% above the national average, we went to 5% above the national average. And, um, you know, it was um, a, a, a good year, um, unlike most of the previous 10 years. Gotcha. And I guess it makes me wonder, maybe some of the other long-standing things that have led to that decline. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, loss of oil jobs, and then COVID would also cause that sort of decline. But it, mm-hmm. but it would still raise the question of what other factors have led to this decline. Because, I mean, if it's been a 10-year decline, there's a lot of factors to it. Well, I think the biggest is our economy has, you know, um, been, you know, underperforming. I mean, you know, we had two recessions. We had the recession in uh, 16, 17, and 18, and just slowly came out in 19, and then COVID hit us. Well, so our economy had very little momentum even prior to COVID. While we were in a recession, the rest of the country was doing really, really well. Um, And even prior to our recession, we were growing, um, employment was growing, and, and our economy was growing, but very, very, very slowly whereas the national economy was red hot. So it was just two very different economic um, pictures. And, you know, a strong economy typically predicts, produces strong income growth, and a weaker economy, you know, has, you know, sort of the opposite effect. And I, I think, you know, those are, you know, sort of explain the two the big differences um, in um uh, our economy relative to the rest of the countries. I mean, think about it. The nation has now more jobs than it's ever had before in its history. We don't. Um, uh, we have to go back quite a ways to find our previous peak, which back, which was back in 2015. Gotcha. Well, we do have about a minute left, so I wanted to give you both an opportunity to kind of make any final statements that you wanted to make. You go right ahead, Rob. I think, well, yeah, I mean, I, no one wants to, I wouldn't want to speculate too much in the future where the real estate market is headed, but I, I do want to, to, to mention that I think anybody who's interested in trying to get a sense of where we could be headed should really pay close attention to the, um, 
the migration data that is produced by our office. And the fact that we've had 10 consecutive years of negative net migration is, is definitely something that people should be, should be watching um, over the long term. Okay. And then, Neil, do you have any closing comments? No, and I think the migration data is a very interesting one, too. I, it, it, it's helping to explain a lot of what's – even though we don't have a great, strong economy, we have a great labor market. Employers are having a real challenge finding workers, and workers are having all kinds of opportunities out there that we haven't seen in a very long time. Gotcha. Well, I'd like to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today. I think it's very interesting, the conversation that we had, because especially I know – housing is always going to be that big topic for a lot of folks. Mm. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jordan, for having us.